You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Hey, loyal managemental listeners. I want to tell you about a great opportunity for the Jabberjaw Media Podcast Network and specifically our show, Managemental, which hopefully you tune into each and every week. The great merchandise company, Rockabilia.com, which is a one-stop shop for all band merch. They've got tons of genres over there. I've spent some time exploring. You know, they've got stuff that, you know, from our bands that we work with, you know, all the way up to the most popular bands in the entire entire world. As the guy who negotiated uh, this deal, I am very impressed with how much they support and want to support our podcast network by giving us money, uh, which will absolutely support our hosts in all of their endeavors of what they're doing. And they're also working on ways to support the bands that are comprised of many of our hosts, as well as the bands who appear in the interviews across our network. So since I brought this up to you, you've spent some time over on the site as well, right? Yeah, man. I mean, you know, let me tell you, this is a company that's been around for 30 years. If you're into rock merchandise, this is the place to go. You know, I'm not just a dude in a band. I'm also a fan. And so, you know, I went to the site. I type in Black Sabbath. Pages and pages of killer merch pops up more so than even the Black Sabbath actual merch page. Um, Cause you know, these guys, they, you know, they collect stuff from everywhere, but it, it's, it's all legit licensed merchandise and it's great. I typed in uh, Cryptic Slaughter, which is my first band. There's actually three pages of official merch there. So I can tell you from the uh, business perspective that these guys are for real. And if you're into band merch, man, this is the place to go. So before we get into today's great episode, please head over to rockabilia.com. By supporting them, you are in turn supporting us. Thank you. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Managemental Podcast, a weekly discussion on hot topics in the music biz for the up-and-comers, the brand newbies, the beginners, and aspiring rock stars of tomorrow. This podcast is propelled by your input and feedback, so please rate and review and leave us a comment on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. I am your host, Mr. Blasco, and as always, I am joined by my good friend, the co-host from the other coast, Mr. Mike Mowry. What up, my brother? I'm on the middle coast today, Nash Vegas, baby. So, (laughs) (laughs) central time zone coming at (laughs) you. Nice. Well, I am back in L.A. after uh, 17 days uh, down south, Um, so feeling good to be back, uh, you know, rocking from home base. Yeah, baby, and just so everybody is aware, this episode, I'm not exactly sure when it's going to make its way to your ear holes, but it won't be the day that it was supposed to, which would have been Monday, November 27th. Uh, we had a little bit of a technical difficulty. Blasco and I actually recorded a really fun version of this podcast, but inevitably, because of some technical difficulties with him traveling, uh, we didn't get all the audio. So we're just going to do it again and hopefully do it even better since we've uh, practiced it once. So uh, 
thanks, <laughs> thanks for thanks Take for your two. guys' patience on uh, you know we like to deliver a consistent product. We're both uh, managers in the business, and you know as podcasters and podcast fans, you know we appreciate it when people do things consistently. That said, we also understand that things happen in life, and uh, this is one of those times. So we were we were striving. We had recorded that previous episode on Thanksgiving Day, and we bragged to each other about how you were working in Mexico, <laughs> and I was working on Thanksgiving Day. But inevitably, here we are recording this on Tuesday, uh, November twenty eighth. Um, but yeah, thanks to everybody that that is waiting and um, does give us feedback, as Blasco mentioned. Yeah, man. In the last episode, uh, we talked about. The, uh, the parting shot, the grand finale of Warp Tour. Uh, that was a cool episode, so check it out if you haven't already. We'd love to hear from you guys, so please continue to write to us at askblasco at gmail.com. Because of that, because of listeners writing in, this week we take some relevant questions from one of our listeners about playing live. Uh, this is going to be killer, so let's get mental. So, yeah, Mike, so, you know, playing live, this is uh, a very important aspect of the business. I imagine this is something that our listeners do or aspire to do on a regular basis. I myself just got home from a tour, uh, so I can speak from experience. Um, But uh, one of our listeners wrote in a while back. We answered some of his questions. He had follow-up questions. Uh, He's in a band himself, and it starts off like this. Hi, Blasco. Thanks for answering my questions a few months back. I have more. This is a random list related to touring and live shows. Number one, I get frustrated when I go to a show intending to see band number two or number three, in addition to number one, on a bill, and they only play 30 to 35 minutes. Is it strategically better to be low on a three or four band bill and play shorter sets or play with fewer bands and longer sets. I vote for the latter. What say you, Mike? Oh, man. So, you know, there's multiple ways to skin a cat, as we both know. And, and you know, what's so interesting is, depending on genre and depending on size of the, the bands, the headliner, and depending on size of the venues they're going into, there can be any number of reasons why, uh, you know, they've, they've got certain support acts and that the support acts are, are limited in time. You know, I think one of the things that I commented on when, when we recorded this previously was, you know, it seems as if, unless you are just a marquee act, you know, you're Metallica or, you know, you're just one of those bands um, that's, that's just, you know, downright massive and you're playing all the right places, you know, you need support in 2017 and 2018. You need bands that are going to, draw other people in presumably the round out a great bill you can't just sell tickets on your own or at least that's been my experience and so you know with that said when you and i put together uh tours for our clients when they do headline yeah we we go and find bands that we think will add value not only from an artistic standpoint for fans of the headliner but also yeah that will bring bodies into the room um and inevitably they 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 have to play shorter um, because of that. And so the nice thing is if done right, those bands will eventually become headliners and, you know, 
you listeners out there and fans will inevitably be able to go see them when they headline playing longer sets. What's what's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, in addition to that, if we're talking strategically, the set time isn't so much as as important to me as positioning, meaning if you play earlier, I would rather play shorter and be further up the bill because in theory, you're playing in front of more people. So I would suggest do what you can to play higher up the bill, even if that set time is shorter, just make sure that you make the best use of the time that you are allowed. Yeah, that's very well put. And, you know, I mean, there is something to the, the supply and demand of things. If you do, you get in there and you have a short set and you blitz through it and you put on a great performance, even if it's, you know, uh, 30 to 35 minutes, you're going to leave people wanting more. And so when you do come back, again, hopefully you're building towards being a headliner. But if you're the opener on a bill, hopefully you're at least moving towards being the opener on a larger touring package meaning more, you know, going into bigger rooms with a bigger band or moving yourself up that ladder going into the two of four position or the direct support. And, you know, that's when you have the chance to to play longer. But I get it. I mean, look, I love the fact that that he is a fan of multiple bands on the bill. You know, there's 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 a lot of people that that don't feel that way. You know, they just want to go in (laughs) and, and see the headliner. So so I appreciate that, you know. He, he's anxious for more time <laughs> from the support acts. So <laughs> totally yeah. uh, moving on. Number two, I'm an old guy and have a regular job. So I hate having to stay up late for shows, but I've been whining about this for 20 years when I was a young guy. Will it ever change? <laughs> Finish by 10 PM would be ideal for me. <laughs> I mean, I, I almost feel like I may have written this email, uh, to, to ourselves. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> no I doubt. like it when something's finished by 10 as well. But, you know, this is one of those things where, again, it's going to be genre dependent. It's actually going to be location dependent. I mean, you're the guy who's just been out on the road. You've been in many different countries, but you, you've toured, you know, extensively throughout North America and Europe. You have to have found that, you know, from city to city or at least even coast to coast, different you know, and venue to venue, you know, different, uh, all of those different aspects go into, you know, kind of when people or when the promoters have the bands, you know, on stage. Is that, is that sort of correct? Yeah. I mean, look, uh, from a managerial standpoint, I have, I have a client that has a very young fan base. And then I have a client that has an older fan base in context of the band with the younger fan base. We do what we can so that they go on as early as possible, 9, 9.15, 9.15 being the absolute latest, because we know that they have a young fan base, and we know that a lot of times they're getting dropped off, parents are, pick, you know, parents are picking them up at the end of the night, or whatever it is. Maybe, maybe they're out and about on their own, and they got to take public transportation or Uber somewhere or whatever. We don't want them being out late. So we do what we can to play early. Conversely, the client that we have that uh, is an older demographic, look, man, we go we go on at 10. You know, the, the show's over at midnight. And, you know, unfortunately, not everybody can do what's ideal for this guy. But, you know, things are the way that they are. And 
if you'd like things to change, maybe you need to, you know, make your own club that ends at 10 or something. No, <laughs> totally. Yeah. No, I mean, look. Pro- and- promote promote the, <laughs> the old guy shows. I'm the old guy promoter and our shows end at 10. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, it, you know, I mean, look, when you do work a regular job, that can be challenging. And, and you know, I think it's funny. That's why, for instance, when we had refused come back you know, in 2012 and they went around and everybody and their brother gave up, you know, every plan they could. They took the next day off work or they got the babysitter or they did whatever they could to ensure that they went and saw the band. And then the next time through, you know, certain number of people that made that sort of ultimate sacrifice of, you know, again, having to to put get somebody to watch the kids if they have kids or, you know, take time off of work. Not as many people were able to do that. And so this guy, I mean, he the struggle is real for him. That's for sure. You know, it's like it's not going yeah. to change. Uh, but I would suggest, you know, if you move to a spot. I mean, I feel like L.A. kind of has relatively early ending shows in comparison to the East Coast. Is that is that a fair perception or am I – do I need to get back out there and come visit you? <laughs> uh, you may be right on that. Um, you know, I feel – it's, it's, I mean, obviously it's a case by case basis, but I do feel like, you know, set times for headliners is somewhere in the neighborhood of like nine, 10 or whatever. But still, I mean, that's, you know, you're home by midnight, even if that's the case. So not really that early. Totally. So, um, number three, when bands design their set list is the best approach to go mostly with Spotify popular with a few oddities thrown in different set list every night. Let the audience request one or two songs. Oh, man. You know, this, I think, is so dependent on the artists themselves. You know, some artists, they, you know, especially if they've got new material out that they want to be pushing and playing or, you know, they like playing, you know, certain songs. But I think most bands are trying to make an effort to, you know, have a great show. And most bands also know that having a great show includes a happy audience. <laughs> and yeah. a happy audience involves, you know, playing songs that people like. So, um, you know, I think if you said Spotify with, you know, the most popular songs, okay, that could be a strategy. Um, you know, different set lists every night, I think, can be really challenging, although some bands thrive on that. I think, uh, didn't you mention like clutch does that is that is that what you said previous clutch clutch does a different set every night um they they rotate between band members uh who writes the set list every every night and you know it's a very democratic layout for them but it keeps it interesting for them and um and you know they even though they they dig in deep to their catalog and stuff they still don't stray away from popular selections as well as current selections. You know, they keep it real, even though they're mixing it up every night. Yeah. And I mean, I just know from, you know, having been in a band that had rotating members, you know, there's certain songs that if, even if an audience member requested them, we might not know it, you know, not every member in the band may have known it. They may not have played on that record or ever practiced the song. And I mean, you know, it was relatively simple, hardcore stuff, but still, you know, you want to be able to feel confident that everybody knows, you know, exactly. I mean, what they're playing. So, you know, I, I do think that there have been some things that I've seen, you know, I, I think it was the devil wears Prada or maybe a couple bands were doing stuff a few years ago where they did a whole tour when they let, audience you know audience i.e in advance that you know they would they would put up a poll or i don't remember what what the platform was but they let you know their fans choose 
um, the set list, which I thought was a really, really cool option for, for a tour. Yeah, I mean, look, let me get your thoughts on this. As, as a music fan, at some point, the music from a band becomes the ownership of that music becomes owned by the fans, right? And I feel like it's the duty of the artist. And granted, this may this may be counterproductive to the, the mindset of an artist, but at some point as a musician, as an artist, I feel like you have to do your audience a service by delivering what they want to hear. And granted, yes, you will have people that want to hear you know, deeper cuts and maybe something off of this album that isn't as popular or whatever. But by and large, I feel like you have to deliver to the masses. And, you know, like being arty as a musician is discouraging for me. Like, I feel like play the hits. Don't, you know what I mean? Like, I, I just feel like the, the, the ownership of this music, whenever you become a more popular band, it really belongs to the fan. Yeah, I mean, look, I think so much of what we talk about, you know, and what I talk about in particular with, you know, the coaching platform that I have, I, I, I talk about the rule and then there's, of course, exceptions. So I think what you're describing is pretty much, you know, what I would call the rule. You know, you want to be able to play songs that people like. There is the exception where there's bands that could give two fucks whether or not, you know, the audience is getting out of it what the audience wants. And maybe that's even the wrong way to say it. They're more interested in focusing on themselves, right? And and their art and their creation. And, and in some ways, that's kind of cool because those types of bands, typically their fans, you know, they like that about the, the band themselves. But yes, I would agree that, I mean, I don't know about the ownership of it. That gets into some like weird sort of philosophical kind of thing when it comes <laughs> to art. But I agree. I mean, you do. You put it out there and, and it by putting it out there i mean i wouldn't say you relinquish ownership of it uh, but but i also can understand the argument that it is not just your own yes uh number four there seem to be more bands touring with fewer members and the help of backing tapes for keyboards bass and other instruments 21 pilots is an extreme example but many four-piece bands cover the fifth and or sixth instrument with backing tracks. I contend that with the state of the music industry, a band is better off doing it that way than not touring at all. Thoughts? So I like, uh, you know, uh, yes, that's a very correct perception, um, which is that there are bands that have replaced instruments with backing tracks. And I, I, I like that he says he contends that with the state of the music industry, which I believe he's going to mean, you know, it's harder to make money, that a band is better off doing it with fewer members, meaning less mouths to feed, less money to split up at the end of the tour if there is any, less flights if you're doing an international thing, less, you know, beds on a bus if you're doing that, less <laughs> hotel rooms or whatever it may be. I think he's right. It is, it, to me, it is okay to do that to a certain extent um i mean and really in fact i think you could do whatever the hell you want to do right it, it's ultimately up to your fans and the public to decide what is kind of acceptable meaning they'll pay with their wallet if they don't like the fact that you've replaced four members of a six-piece band <laughs> with tapes they won't show up but you know i mean i think 21 pilots 
and and not knowing enough about them as a whole, and surely I don't know if I've ever actually seen them live. I'm going to guess that like the two person vibe was like that was part of their aesthetic. You know, it was like we're going to be minimalist in some senses, and the people, you know, the two guys that are in it are going to make a massive impact. Meaning they're going to you know almost make up for the fact that there aren't other members there by being so. Uh, I guess you know whatever the word is, just just you know, rambunctious. So, uh, I don't know. What's your take on it all? Well, let me ask you this. The Ronnie James Dio hologram. Cool? Cool? Or creepy? Um, a little of both, in all honesty. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I just think, like, I, I'm a fan of looking forward, um, you know, and, and the purism part of things to me, uh, I get, and again, to each their own. I mean, I don't necessarily love the Foo Fighters, but I respect the shit out of Dave Grohl, and I'm a fan of him and his collective work, if you will. And, you know, he's definitely a guy who says, get in the jam room, play your instruments, record live, da-da-da-da-da-da. And I think that's awesome. But I don't give a shit if there's another band that comes along that says, no, we don't want to do it that way at all. In fact... All of us live in different places. We met on Skype or we met on a message board. You know, we're all recording our stuff individually, sending it in. We've never jammed, you know, you name it. To me, that's just as fair, if you will. It's just as just. It's art and it's the collaboration and there is no right way to do it. Uh, so I think, again, to each their own. And if you've got a, an audience and an audience is willing to come see you, regardless of how you've done it, by all means. So let me ask you this. When they did the Ronnie James deal hologram, <laughs> did people show up? Yeah, I don't think they've done it yet. So oh, they haven't done it. Know. Okay, sorry. I, I keep thinking I back think so. to the, uh, to the uh, you know, the, the Coachella where they, they, they had, was it Tupac? Was that the yep. one? Yeah. Yep. Um, I, you know, I think technology is this fascinating thing and the space where technology and, you know, art and music meet. I'm excited about it always kind of continuing to push forward. And if if the the hologram allows people to experience something that is genuine and interesting and exciting, then by all means do it. And if you don't like it, you don't have to go. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's my take. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, number five. If I were a manager, I would encourage a band to creatively incorporate a cover song into their set, either the full song or part of a cover mixed into another song or a medley of covers. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think this is interesting, and, and I'm curious. I mean, I wonder if he's approaching it from like a developing artist standpoint, um, which I would imagine so, and, and and think that in some ways he's right. You know, I mean, again, so much of it comes down to genre comes down to the place, comes down to the demographic, yada, yada, yada. But presuming that he's listening to our podcast and knows, you know, most of the style of bands that we work with and is dealing with developmental stuff, I'd say, yes, I've, I've absolutely encouraged many of my bands to do something that can pull the crowd in and, and engage them. And there's something to be said about watching a band do something, you know, play a song uh, that 
that is not their own, but that, you know, the collective audience knows and it pulls them in in a way that then keeps them hopefully captivated for, for them to appreciate the rest of what the band is, is going to, you know, perform What what's your take on it? I mean, look, I, I don't know if I would encourage a client to incorporate covers. Uh, if they were, if a client came to me and said, we're thinking of incorporating a cover, what do you think? I would say it's a good idea as long as you do it your own way. It's like, don't do a Pantera cover, you know, unless you're going to do it acoustically. Like, you know what I mean? If you're going to be do, doing like uh, walk, but you do an acoustic version of it, then that's potentially going to be interesting. But if you're just going to try and, you know, heavy up a song that already exists or whatever, like, oh, we're going to play Don't Fear the Reaper, but we're going to do the heavy metal version. I'm a, well, maybe that would even be cool. But, um, <laughs> but um, so I, it comes down to a matter of how you're going to do it. I, as a musician, I do feel that there is something important about cover songs early on in your career in that I feel like to dig into the anatomy of a song that is popular, the the, the way that the chord progression is, how the riff goes, how the melody works with how the song structure goes. I feel like as a musician, you do yourself a, a, a very large service by digging into cover songs from an analytical standpoint, not yep. saying that you, not saying that you need to play them live or record them or, or make it a part of your set, but understanding what makes a hit song a hit, or understanding what makes a popular song popular, understanding what makes someone want to start a circle pit, like understanding those moments, I believe is important, and then taking that and incorporating it into your own music is maybe also another way of what I would encourage someone to do. A couple of things are coming to, to my head, and, and on the plane down, um, I have my iTunes open, and I don't have a lot of music on my computer you know, stored, because now I just stream everything, and so... I was just fiddling through, and, and I came across uh, Periphery's version of, um, what's the name of that band? The Florence and the Machine. So Sumerian did a Florence and the Machine comp, and Periphery did a track when I was working with them, and Darkest Hour did a track, and it was cool. I really, like, I listened to the Periphery track. That was the only one that I had on my iTunes, and it was awesome. It was really enjoyable, and, you know... It's one of those, it was an honor to work with that band and really fun to do so, but I'm not going to say that I loved their music. I totally understand why people appreciate it, which is what, you know, made me, in my mind, a very good manager for them at that time. But I really liked this version of it. And it also, from what you just said, when Darkest Hour recorded their version, it, John Henry, the singer you know, who had done melodic singing in the past on certain records, I, I, I'm almost positive that the way that they did it, like you're saying, the, the exposure to it and them figuring out the way to do their own take opened him up to even a wider, you know, uh, ability to figure out how to incorporate melody into the band's original tracks, which is a really fascinating thing that you, yeah, you couldn't get by only doing your own original stuff all the time. Exactly. Final number six, open for a band that your music is a total mismatch. Is it worth taking the risk for exposure or avoid it? I've seen many shows where a screamo band opens for a pop punk band. Doesn't seem like the screamo band gains much from that situation. So what do you think? 
Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it all depends on the range of genres. I mean, you know, again, you and I have bands on the Warp Tour, you know, which go back and listen to last week's episode where we talk about the fact that, you know, this will be the 2018 will be the last full U.S. Warp Tour run. But we've had the fortunate pleasure of having bands on that tour each and every year. And, and there is, there's, it's, it's really diverse. And yes, they try to keep, you know, certain stages, especially the monster stuff that's now really heavy versus the main stage, which might have stuff that's lighter, but you definitely have pop punk bands and screamo bands. And there's absolutely people who are fans of both, right? I don't think that you're going to want to put a depressive suicidal black metal band like my client ghost bath out with Night Argent, which is more or less an indie kind of, you know, pop rock band. That doesn't really make sense. But I will say, you know, when I was managing the band Set It Off, we put them on a lot of tours that were heavier than I think the band wanted to be on, you know. And that's, at the time, the bands that they wanted to tour with weren't interested in taking them on tour. And my philosophy was, especially when you're developing a band, you kind of say yes within reason until you until you can say no. So touring in any capacity makes sense from certain, you know, standpoints. One, just like we were talking about with cover songs, it teaches you how to actually tour, right? And you may have toured a bazillion times playing 100 cap rooms, but the minute you go out and play, you know, a thousand capacity room, even if it's not your own fans, you learn things you learn things from the headliner, the direct support band. You see how people wire their gear differently. You see what it's like to actually have a sound engineer. All kinds of crazy stuff like that. And on the flip side, from the industry standpoint, you are on flyers that you know promoters are looking at. People are reading. There's familiarity. I can't tell you the number of times that I've had a band out on a bit of a mismatched tour and had the promoter email me or email the agent that said, holy crap, this band was fantastic. I would have never caught them had they not been on this run. You know, let me figure out a way to get them back here. Or let me know if I can help you find tours that fit the band a little bit better. So again, I, I think, I definitely think that within reason, total total mismatches or at least mismatches are, are absolutely okay. What, what's your take on it? I feel like streaming has open the gateway to fans of a younger generation to open themselves up to a wider range of tastes. And I don't like, I don't feel like a mismatch is a problem uh, unless it, unless it wasn't uh, built in a way to where it catered to, to the fans kind of like you know, the examples that you mentioned, but I don't, I don't feel like people only listen to one type of music anymore. I feel like tastes have grown and, and with playlisting and, and just the, the ability to have so much access to so much kind of music, like I feel like, you know, the, the gates are open. I mean, I, I feel like there's a lot more experimentation that can be done. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's like comedians going out with rock bands and you, you know what I mean? Maybe it's like, like YouTubers or, or whatever, like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like there's a lot more experiment that can be done. Like mismatching to me kind of sounds exciting almost in a way, you know, whereas like, like Joey that plays in, uh, Zach Sabbath, he also plays in trash talk and they just did a tour with action Bronson. Now speaking like, you know, think of a mismatch, but it totally works in context because these kids 
are just they're all about that kind of subculture and it it makes it works it's like it's not just like oh let's stack a bill with a bunch of like rap bands or let's stack a bill with a bunch of hardcore bands no let's combine them and make it a, an event that's like fun and exciting and not all the same so i i i, in, I embrace the idea of mismatching yeah I, I would agree with you and you know i i think as a guy from the hardcore scene you know it's like everybody always talks about how you know Back in the day, punk bands played with hardcore bands, played with ska bands, you know, you name it. And we all did. We loved those shows. And you know what? If you didn't like the ska band, you went outside and you fucking chatted up with your buds, you know. And But I would agree. I think that diversity is cool and a lot of fun. And I think that's why tours like the Warp Tour have thrived over the years. So I'm with you. I love the idea of, you know, like you said, incorporating things like comedians. I mean, on the flip side, I do think... You know, if you're going to see Cannibal Corpse and you want to see, you know, three other fucking kind of heavy, you know, death metal bands, that's awesome too. So again, I think as we, as my recurring theme has been in this, it's you know, it's really up to the audience to decide, and people vote by by whether they're showing up or not. Yep. Well, that concludes episode 45. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. We will be back here next week. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Blasco1313. We encourage you to email us any questions or comments you may have to the podcast to me directly at askblasco at gmail.com. If you have listened this far, much respect to you for making efforts to educate yourselves and taking your future into your own hands. Mike, your final parting thoughts? Uh, all I want to say is thanks for bearing with us as we, you know, uh, struggle to make sure that we get this episode to you. Blasco, thank you for patiently working with me uh, through the technical difficulty and my travel schedule this week. Uh, we do this for you guys. Let us know what you think. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Mike O'Loop. Uh, and I've got my coaching platform, OuterLeapCoaching.com, where you can go and look at a few of the courses that we are offering. And we've got some big things planned for 2018. And last but not least, head on over to Rockabilia.com. You'll hear the read at the beginning of this episode. But head on over there. Uh, support them. They are really supportive of this podcast and the network Jabberjaw. So, you know, if you're doing some Christmas shopping, get on over there and, uh, you know, get some stuff. So thanks a ton. Thanks everybody. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. 
I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now on Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts.